Welcome to New Books on Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the real pleasure of talking to Lynn Vavrick, who is the author with John Size of The Gamble, Choice and Chance in the 2012 Presidential Election. Lynn, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, it's been about a year since I had the chance to talk with John about the start of the book, and so it's really great to have you on now at the conclusion of the book. Uh, maybe we can start by learning just a little bit more about you and, and how you and John came to collaborate on the book. Is it the first thing that you guys have written together, or is this a long-standing research collaboration? So who are you? <laughs> um, it is the first piece of academic research that John and I have worked on together. We um, we wrote a report for the APSA um, in 2011 on... Uh, a, task, a task force report that I was the co-chair of, uh, Bruce Kane and I, um, were charged with the mission of uh, telling the APSA how they could make political science more relevant. Um, and we put John on that uh, task force, and so that was the first thing that John and I had done together in terms of writing. Fantastic. And you are now where? What is your where? Where do you sit when we uh, when we talk? I am at UCLA. Um, I've been here for 12 years. My first job, my first tenure track job was at Dartmouth College, where I spent three years. And uh, before that, I had a postdoc at Princeton. But this is by far the longest I've ever been anywhere. Okay. Well, well fantastic. It's so nice to, to be able to talk to you about this uh, really, really interesting book that's gotten a lot of attention, which we'll talk a little bit about. Before we actually get to the book, uh, Charles Myers from Princeton University Press wrote a, wrote a foreword for the book where he explains um, the gamble that you and John took. Uh, he also describes the gamble that the, uh, the, the press actually took. Would you talk a little bit about the actual writing of the book, um, how it may be a little bit different than the typical academic book, and a year later, how well this gamble turned out for the two of you? Yeah, so John and I had the chance to write this book because I um, I had started doing these cooperative election studies in 2006 with the polling firm YouGov. And in 2008, we did a presidential um, version of this called the Cooperative Campaign Analysis Project. And YouGov wanted to do it again in 2012. And the person who I worked with in 2008 had gone on to be the principal investigator of the National Election Study. And I didn't want to do it alone. It's a lot of work to run a, an election study. So I sat down and I said, who are the right people to, to do this with me? Um, and one of those people was John Sides. And so when John said that he was interested, his proposition back to me was, how about if we use the data? The, the, the design of the project was to have weekly interviews of a 1,000 people every week. And John said, what if we use the data in real time to write a book about the election and we can publish e-chapters in advance of the actual book as the campaign is unfolded. Um, and Sasha Eisenberg was doing this with his book, The Victory Lab, and we thought it was a great model. And so I said, sure, um, that'd be great. You know, who's crazy enough to publish this? And we went around and pitched it to, you know, a couple of trade presses and a couple of academic presses. Um, and everybody said, no, no one's taking a chance on a, a couple of authors who have never written a popular book before. Um, so the trade presses were not gonna not gonna back us, um, and most of the academic presses weren't nimble enough to get the book out in real time. But Chuck Myers at Princeton University Press 
um, saw it as an opportunity for the press to really innovate and to move into the digital space, which he really thinks is the future of publishing, um, even in the academy. And he took it to his board and said, you know, we got to do this. We have to find out a way to get these chapters reviewed in real time, to turn it around really quickly, and then at the end, how to take all that digital material and assemble it into a real book and get it out within a year of the election. So the press really did some um, – they really changed the way that they published books for this book, and they kept us on schedule. Um, I think without them, we might have missed our deadline. I mean, we certainly missed the deadline. Let's just be clear. But we would have we would have really made it impossible. Um, but they were um, they were very good about reminding us that if you know really if we don't have it on Friday, it's not coming out you know before August. Um, and 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 so you know we it was hard, but at the end of the day, I think it worked. And would you ever agree to do this again? This is, is this uh, uh, something that you would recommend for other people to do? Is this is this the new model, or is this something that uh, is possible but not probable? Uh, did this alter your life in some way that you're not willing to alter again? So there are two dimensions of this um, this question. I think um, the first is nobody does science in real time, so science takes time. So the idea that that you're going to really engage in, in new science quickly is, is just kind of a non-starter. Um, I think we do have a couple moments of new science in the book, but mostly that's because, you know, John and I had spent our entire careers thinking about problems that we were then able to address with the data in the book. So, but I think in most cases, um, that's not going to happen. So right off the bat, if you're going to write an election book in real time, I think you have to resign to the fact that you're not producing a lot of new science. Um, okay. So, but the second thing is, you know, one of the things that afforded us the opportunity to actually get some new findings out there um, was the data that we had were really unprecedented. So the design of this project, 45,000 people interviewed in 1,000-person chunks over the course of the year, and then everybody has a 2011 interview, and everybody has a post-election interview. So it's a three-way rolling panel of 45,000 people. I mean, these data are really fantastic. Um, we only have them because of a partnership with YouGov. So if you had to pay for these data, well, first of all, no political scientists could pay for these data. You just could not afford um, you could not afford them. So when you ask me if I'm going to do it again, the first thing I think of is I wouldn't want to do it without data like this because that's what makes this book unique. Um, then the second question is, are we likely to have these kind of data again? And I think the answer to that almost surely has to be probably not. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, you know, we really relied on the generosity of YouGov, but also a company called General Sentiment which provided us with all of the media tracking data. 11,000 media outlets tracked every day in 2012. Um, and, uh, you know, YouGov with 135,000 unique interviews. Um, and then uh, we purchased data from the Nielsen Company on a uh, 1,200,000 advertisements. Yeah, well, the result, uh, I think you may be underselling the amount of, of, of new science that, that you produce. You produce a lot of 
very, very interesting, meaningful, meaningful stuff in the book. So let's talk about the book itself. Okay. You start with the number 68, uh, 68 so-called game changers. And this is kind of the central conceit of the book, that there are problems with the way in which we've tried to understand elections, that is very publicly. Uh, without delving into each of these 68, that is 68 so-called game changers, is there one or two supposed game changers that stood out to you as particularly absurd or outlandish, one that, that uh, really just, you know, in this, in this build-up to the book, you said, that's one that I'd like to take on, or this is one that just stands out as, as so patently absurd, but somehow has captured the imagination that everyone believes it to be true. Is there one that stands out to you? Um, well, I mean, the totally absurd ones, of course, are the ones like, you know, Lindsay Lohan endorses Mitt Romney, and this is a game changer. Um, so I think everybody agrees that's probably never going to be a game changer. But the more common ones, um, things like the nomination of Paul Ryan or something like, um, you know, this unusual group of undecided voters and doesn't this really mean that the challenger is likely to win. You know, those kinds of um, conventional wisdom, game-changing moments, I think, you know, we pretty clearly – in political science understand that those things rarely change the game um, or even affect the outcome. So rather than campaigns as a series of game changers, whether, whether they're 68 or more or less, you argue for a different way to understand the 2012 election, presidential elections generally. So what matters most to, to you, John? What's, what is the, the essence of, of what drives elections forward? Yeah, one of the interesting things that um, come out of this kind of a of a deep and and so so it's both deep but it's also long. So we're looking across a long time period, but we're looking into the electorate in a very specific way. One of the things that comes out of um, this kind of work is we were able to see that the presidential campaign isn't like a boxing match with the lead changing every now and then given what's happening in the world or in the campaign, but that it's actually much more like a tug of war with both sides pulling really hard all the time. And the tug of war metaphor is really great because the flag in the middle seems not to be moving. And so that's like the, the top line poll result. Everyone says, you know, nothing's moving. The whole thing moves three points, you know, day to day. That's, that's sampling fluctuation. Um, and they think nothing's happening. Two billion dollars wasted on the campaign. In fact, our take is that's two billion dollars really well spent by each side. Because if one or the other of them stopped pulling, the same thing would happen, just like in a tug of war. The flag would fly over to the other side. So if Mitt Romney stopped advertising, if, you know, Barack Obama stopped trying to mobilize his state, then the other side would start to gain in the polls. But they're so able to neutralize each other. And we could see that in the advertising data. We could see it in the tone of the media coverage. Um, and we could see it in the panel by using the panel nature of our data that very few people, um, when we look at the net change, let's say we didn't have panel data. We only had cross-sectional data. When we look at the net change from 2011 to 2012. It looks like 4% of the people move. But in truth, because we have panel data, we can actually see who is stable over the entire year and who's moving at least once. 
And that number is more like 13 or 14 percent. So there is a dynamic to this. There are people moving. The movements are just canceling each other out. And that's why it's hard for political scientists to uncover campaign effects. So one of the sort of some of the attention that's come to the work that you guys have been doing and, and others, some of the others that you have mentioned that people know well, is, is sort of the, the relationship between this kind of election coverage and the other kinds of election coverage. And I'm sure that you, and you mentioned the book, you've worked closely with journalists and pundits in writing the book, and I'm sure that many of them are your friends. But uh, what's your goal to, to shred their whole methodology? Um, I wonder if you've received any feedback from reporters who have, who have read the book. Um, they're typically the ones we look to to write the election postmortem. Right. Um, your approach is very different. Um, your book now sits next to those books on the bookshelves rather than what's typically done, which is they either don't sit on the bookshelves or they come out five, six, seven years later. What has it been like to be in conversation with that the other group that typically writes about elections? First of all, I have to say that they, they have all been fantastic. Um, John and I didn't know what to expect. We certainly didn't frame the book as what, you know, what reporters do wrong. Um, because that really wasn't what we wanted the book at all to be about. Um, and there was no guarantee that in 2012 the basic takeaways would be wrong. So we didn't frame it that way. And, um, you know, we did uh, engage national political reporters and editors and bureau chiefs and columnists early in our work on the election by introducing them to our survey, offering them the chance to put questions on our survey. None of them actually took us up on that. But, you know, we really wanted to convey that, you know, we're in this to do something good, um, and we would like for you guys to be a part of it. And everybody responded to that. So that's the first thing to say. Um, the second thing to say is that I would never suggest that you read The Gamble and not read any of those other books. Um, for example, the Dan Balls book, Collision 2012. So the way I like to think about this is that, you know, Dan is going to tell you why the candidates did what they did, why the campaign managers made these decisions. And that's really interesting. It's really interesting to political scientists, I think. Um, what we're going to tell you is whether what they did actually matters. And so taken together, those books actually paint a pretty complete picture of the campaign environment. We can't tell you what, what Dan is able to tell you, um, and he can't tell you what we're able to tell you. So if you're interested in the whole story, you actually need to read both. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. One of, one of the things that I wondered in, in reading this, you're focused squarely on the presidential election. How much of what you conclude or, or how much of your approach can be taken to understanding other elections? You, you, you sort of, your, your argument is that there are these, these uh, fundamental things that a uh, candidate face um, that, that don't change a lot, um, and then there's this push and pull. How much of this can we take to understanding elections at the state level or local level or congressional elections? Is there How much overlap is there? Well, it, I think it, it, it gets a little bit, uh, you know, it's different, I think, is the answer. Um, in the presidential election, the state of the national economy looms so large in painting the context in which these candidates will run. And so they recognize that they construct campaign messages that have as their central 
feature whether they benefit or not from the state of the, the nation's economy. Um, in 2012, they both decided that they did, which is an interesting case. But um, when you and, and in presidential elections, they have unlimited amounts of money now. Um, another thing that's different relative to previous presidential elections. So when you start going down the ballot to governor's races, Senate races, House races, the first thing is you're rarely in a situation where both candidates are equally well-funded. You're rarely in a situation where both candidates are of equally high quality. So those differences are going to start to manifest themselves in terms of vote share pretty quickly. And the state of the nation's economy is a little less important as a structuring feature in these down-ballot races. And people always want to say, well, how about the state economy? That's even less of a feature. Um, how about my local city economy? How about how business conditions are doing in, you know, my town? All of that stuff gets farther and farther afield, um, you know, which does raise this interesting question about what is it about the state of the nation's economy that structures these presidential elections? But that's a conversation for a different podcast. So I think you can think of the parallel like this. You have to find what that fundamental structuring condition is in an, in an election in a down-ballot race. And it might just be a retrospection on the performance of the incumbent, or it might be whether it's an open seat, for example. Once you identify that, then I think assessing the quality of the candidates and their funding level um, then that stuff, I think, does parallel the kinds of things we talk about in the book. But it's not a direct, uh, it's not a direct comparison. Yeah, I can add my name to the long list of people who have read this book at this point and enjoyed this book and can recommend it. What's, what's next from you? What, what can we look forward to? Do we have to wait <laughs> four years for another election for something? Or do you have something else in the hopper that you're working on? Well, um, I'm, uh, I'm finishing up a lot of papers that didn't uh, get finished in 2012. That would be the first mm-hmm. thing. Is, as my one of my colleagues says, I'm, I'm going to move the inventory um, that's been sort of in the in backlog. Um, but I am I am thinking sort of um, about a next big project, and I think uh, that maybe I'm interested in engaging at a real local level this question of. Um, polarization among the mass public and, you know, what's really happening in communities around the country? Are Democrats and Republicans sitting on PTAs together and is that stopping them from getting stuff done, solving problems in local communities? Um, and I don't know how I'm going to do that and I don't know where the money's going to come from to do it, but uh, it is a question that interests me. Well, I, I look forward to that. Um, <laughs> Because I enjoyed the current book that Lynn and John Sides wrote, The Gamble, Choice and Chance in the 2012 Presidential Election, published this year by Princeton University Press. Lynn, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome.